0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women Join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura's Arrow. And don't forget that our podcast is available to you 24-7, wherever you get yours. Just search on Women at Work and me, Laura's Arrow, and you'll find us. And speaking of 24-7, we're talking about working moms today, the people who never stop. The unique challenges we face and how we as moms and employers can construct more sustainable sustainable approaches to this essential long-term challenge. And we have the perfect guest today to help us in this process. Dr. Whitney Caceres is the author of The Working Mom Blueprint, Winning at Parenting Without Losing Yourself. Whitney is a Stanford University-trained pediatrician with a Master of Public Health in Maternal and Child Health from the University of California, Berkeley, and a journalism degree from California Polytechnic State University. She's got a website, modernmommydoc.com, where you can find lots of information about handling work and motherhood, and where you can listen to episodes of her Modern Mommy podcast. So with that, Whitney, welcome to Women at Work.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Oh, it's our pleasure as well. So when I
1: saw the title of the book, The Working Mom Blueprint, one of the things that made me think of is, you know, for me, I care about helping women in the workplace, but I'm also a working mom. So I want to know how much of your writing this was because you live this or because you got tuned into working moms through your own work as a pediatrician?
0: Yeah, really both simultaneously. I mean, I was one of those people before I became a mom who really felt like there's no limit. There is no glass ceiling. My mom taught me like lean all the way in sister, like (laughs) go for it. And so I believe that mantra. I rose to the top. I was in an executive leadership position within my practice. And then I had my first daughter and she really took me for a spin. You know, she was a difficult baby. She was colicky. I dealt with postpartum depression and anxiety, and also I just felt this push and pull of I was constantly giving it my all at work. And really trying to go for the gold. My work still expected that from me. And then I would feel guilty that I wasn't doing everything that I should be doing as a mom, that I was quote unquote a bad mom. So then I would really give it my all in the mom department. And then I would feel like I wasn't being a good doctor anymore, a good employee, that I was kind of like a lifestyle business person. And so then I would swing the other way. And I found myself on this pendulum and really feeling conflicted about ninety nine percent of the time and having competing interests. And then I started talking about it in my clinical world in pediatric practice because I still practice private practice pediatrics in Portland. And I'm that type of person that when I'm in the office, I'm always talking about kind of just life experiences and what's going on and building rapport. And these moms kept on coming to me with this exact same idea of conflict. And they might not have the same kind of extreme child that my daughter ended up being. She has a pretty severe anxiety disorder and sensory processing issues but they still had this feeling of, I feel like I'm supposed to do it all. And yet I feel like I'm hardly ever doing anything well. And you spoke to this idea in the very beginning of 24 seven, feeling like they needed to be on and hundred percent 24 seven in all areas of their life to be successful. And as you say
1: that, it's like, it sounds crazy yet. I've lived it. And all the moms I know live it. And yes. especially the ones who are working outside of the home, because there's a whether it's the demand of having to bring in an income, or and or the drive to have a fulfilling, meaningful, dynamic work life, um, the expectations of ourselves and the expectations around us. Like we don't know how to calibrate it um, to get either of it under control. So you're seeing this simultaneously in
0: yourself and in the moms whose babies you're treating exactly exactly and it's only getting worse i think as we have more social media presence that says like you know really go for it um when the pandemic hit i think people really felt like on overload which is why i think we saw a lot of these moms just go like forget it uncle i can't do it anymore you know um (laughs) and and yes just this feeling of i need to be all things to all people all the time um and i think we as as women we're kind of trained to be at least i was trained to be like people pleasers to be the type of person who doesn't say no to anything. I know in my own upbringing, there was a lot of talk about grit and about persistence and about, you know, really, if you believe in something, then you're all out, you're committed to it. And so I am trying to challenge women to say, maybe what we should do is figure out what are our top five priorities? What are the things that we care about? the most about that we want to put a hundred percent effort into? And then what are the things we need to just let go or have actual like selective mediocrity around like say (laughs) purposefully intentionally i'm going to do this badly or like a t-shirt that says
1: i embrace selective mediocrity um (laughs) so i want to back up for a minute because there was a lot in what you just said and i think some important and complex ideas that i want to unpack a little bit with you so one because i don't want this to get oversimplified is um You're younger than I am, and I can't tell you how overjoyed I am to hear that you were raised with the idea of go for it, lean in, that expectation that you could shoot for the moon and actually reach it. Um, And at the same time, part of what you're saying now is that that same mentality is part of why we go for everything at that level. And you're saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't go for it all. Is it about? Ratcheting back our professional ambition, or is it about selecting where attention
0: goes? I think it's about selecting where attention goes. And Sheryl Sandberg and Lean In, I have absolutely no beef with them. I think <laughs> that was necessary at that time, enormously. And like, yes, yeah, and like all big movements, you, the pendulum has to be swing really far to one side to get people's attention and to get people motivated, to get people really on board. And so I feel like at the time that she wrote the book, it was really this call to arms for women to say, no, you deserve a place in the workforce. You belong there. And here's this like way to do it. It might be that you have to kind of like play by the boys roles, but you need to do it that way because those are the rules by which corporations play. And so I think there was a super important value to what she wrote at that time. I think now I have the privilege, my generation has the privilege of being able to say, those really industrious women put in all of that effort on our behalf so that now I do get to say, when are the moments that I want to lean in or that I want to lean out? How can I encourage my employer to be able to see me as a whole person, not just as an employee? Um, when are the times where I really should go for it? I still have so much ambition. My partner, no one can see me by pointing it behind me to my office mate. <laughs> my, my my partner always looks at me and goes, Winnie, you are the most ambitious person that I have ever met. And at first I kind of took that as a as a negative, like, oh, that means I'm just like I'm uh, too go for it. I'm single-minded. We do a whole show on how gendered that is. But go exactly, ahead. exactly. And then I realized, like, no, that just means he sees that I have passion and that there are moments and seasons of my life where I pour myself fully into my work during a book launch, for example, when I'm trying to, you know, uh, launch a membership site for Modern Mommy Doc, where I say to my kids, hey, dad's got you. Mommy's really busy right now. And I'm helping other (laughs) women and other people in the world. And there's more to me than being a mom. And so you guys are going to have to wait for a hot minute while I get this all sorted. But then I have to come back to myself to know when are the times though, where I'm getting like a little bit like off of, off of center where I'm swinging that pendulum way too far. My goal for myself is that 99% of the time that I'm more in my center and then I'm going like toward work, then back toward family, then back toward myself, then back toward work, then back toward family. And that there are rare moments where I have to be really like blinders on now I'm just only doing stuff for my family or only doing stuff for my work because when I'm that way too much of the time, I tend to feel really lost. Of
1: course you do.
0: So I want to back up a minute
1: and put this in context over time because I I appreciate how you were anchoring that, you know, there's generational shifts that are going on. Um, I recently saw my 80-year-old mom who made a lot of interesting choices and Um, She was she worked, had a great career, um, and this was in the early 60s and then stayed at home to raise us and then went back to work, um, not just for financial independence, but because she really needed to for herself. It was both things. And that as much as she had taken time out completely, she then went full steam ahead in her career. Um, in a way that she made choices about what not to do in her life in other realms, but had the career she wanted, traveled the world, retired in her version of paradise. And, you know, for her, like, as she was giving me advice along the way, it was like about making choices about what your priorities are. But as you were talking about the pendulum and that I feel like she had did it like it was binary. It was all on or it was all off. And, Part of what I'm hearing from you is about that it's not just about whether we use the word blend or integration or balance, which is impossible, but that it's not just about having it all just not at the same time wellness seems to be a factor in here. Like you, you shared with us and it was you know where a little word has great meaning that you, you had some postpartum depression, which is a very real issue for moms. And as a pediatrician, you're seeing moms in your office. So I want to talk about choice and managing, but talk to me first about this framing of wellness. Cause I feel like it's not something that was part of how previous generations addressed this.
0: Absolutely. I actually think that wellness is that the center is the key for all of this. I think awareness of who we are as people. I think that being able to be still with ourselves, <laughs> which is very difficult for some, <laughs> for people who are ambitious and busy people like me and come from a long line of people with anxiety, you know, um, but being able to really understand who you are and to become your own navigational beacon, which I think for for the choices that you make, which to me comes from being well. And um, I talk a lot about self-care in the book and it's not because I want people to run out and get nannies, petties and facials. it's because I know, that when i make decisions when i am frazzled and tired and burnt out that i make poor reactive decisions that i make decisions that are about ego that i make decisions that are about um i'm triggered because of like something that my mom told me in a bad moment you know um that my boss wants me to do out of obligation when i am well i have boundaries When I am well, I think clearly. When I am well, I'm a great problem solver. And so wellness to me is about creating still moments for myself where I can be, you know, in my feelings, like Drake says, Um, creating moments where I have joy for myself, where I remember what it feels like to feel good. Um, To me, that's like on my Peloton, listening to Justin Bieber and SZA, right? That's like my version of of complete joy. Um, It's creating times where I have rest um, with my family outside in the backyard on a hammock. Um, And then it's also creating times, creating systems in my life where I have, where I have routines, where I go to bed at a time that allows me to get seven to eight hours of rest, as opposed to five hours of rest, that I nourish myself in a way that's going to give me energy. So wellness to me is about that physical part and that mental part. But at the end of the day, it's about being able to be still and knowing in myself enough to create those spaces so that when I'm making decisions and making choices in my life, it's coming from a place of grounding versus a place of being scattered.
1: For those of you who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zaro. My guest today is Dr. Whitney Caceres, author of The Working Mom Blueprint. So Whitney, one of the things I love that you put in the book about this issue of self-care was a quote from Audre Lorde, um, that caring for myself is not self-indulgence, it's self-preservation, and that is an act of political warfare. It sounds like it's also an essential tool in maintaining an effective professional and personal life. That we can't function effectively for our kids or in the workplace if we don't factor that in.
0: Yes. And I think for me, it was really trial by fire. I'm not sure if I hadn't had the first child that I had, if I would have understood that so deeply. But my daughter, she was difficult when she was a baby. She only slept for 45 minutes. She was colicky kids. i get out. But then when she got older, she would have, yeah, we had a sleep trainer by that. I mean, we got her to go to sleep for like two hours at a time when she was about 10 weeks old, just so I could go back to work. I mean, I remember when I was back to work, she's about three months old. And I was calling in a prescription for eye drops. And the pharmacist called me back and said, like, I couldn't understand anything you had to say. And that's when I knew well, if I want to be a professional, I have to really work on this. Anyhow, as she got older too, she, you know, was a well of need. She sucked up all of my energy or she would, if she could, she right now, if she was with me today, she would be like clinging on to me, like a little spider monkey just on me. And so Trial by fire, I had to create some space for myself. It's a matter of survival. It was
1: literally pennies and teddies. It's a matter of, it's the essentials. It's sleep. It's food. It's the ability to calm down, manage your own Mm -hmm. anxiety. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. (sighs) Okay, so first of all, my heart goes out to you because um, even without that, those days, like we've talked about a lot and why we're doing this today, it's hard for everybody, but particularly when you're so sleep deprived, which is um, truly unsustainable. So talk to me about, let's talk, start with sleep um, and get practical for a minute. So um, whether it's your story or what you, what you would tell moms coming into your office, because it's one thing to say, you need to sleep more. That's easy. Doing it is a whole other thing. So how did you go from, yeah, this isn't going to work to I'm not going to stop parenting. I'm not
0: going to stop working, but I have got to get some sleep. Yeah. So let me first address the new moms, the moms or the moms who are prepared, the women who are preparing to have babies and trying to avoid or prevent that postpartum depression and anxiety, because I think that's where everything starts. Because once you get into that cycle, if you don't get help, it's like really, really hard to get out of it. So the number one thing for sleep is if you have a partner that you divvy up, you are the feeder in chief and your partner is what I call the soother in chief. you, yeah, Yes. So you create some equity your partner is the one who is the master at swaddling. I was just at the hospital this morning and saw a baby and they asked me to swaddle the baby. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't know how to do that. My husband, my husband did that. Um, So, so make it so that your partner, if you have one is the person who is swaddling is shushing is learning to do all those things. So that in the middle of the night, if you need to feed then your partner can do it. If you're not breastfeeding, if you're bottle feeding, that you're trying to create some equity around who's gonna do that. If you don't have a partner, that you're getting other people in your village that are coming to do that, or that instead of buying a fancy crib and fancy nursery stuff and putting that on your registry, that you put getting a doula on your registry or getting some education about soothing on your registry. So that that way you just have other people, other resources that can help you in the middle of the night. So
1: before you go on, because right there, there's a challenge that I know I experienced and I've seen it and read about it for a lot of moms. Mm-hmm. There's the combination of that sense of duty, compulsion. Am I not being a good mom if I don't do that stuff? And then there's also the challenge of trusting our partners to do it in their own way. Are, it, it, to what degree,
0: like, how can we learn to do that too? Yes. Okay. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually essential here. Uh, Jancy Dunn in her book, How Not to Hate Your Husband After Kids, which is a fantastic read. I'm constantly (laughs) plugging her because the title is salacious, but actually the book is very well balanced and it's not a man-hating book at all. It's like just chock full of research and great stuff. She talks about this idea of maternal gatekeeping. And how biologically that's actually a very normal thing and biologically driven thing for us to do as moms. That's like the mama bear phenomenon. We, you know, someone's come in or doing something to our baby. We want to like swat them away or tell them, "Nope, you're doing it wrong." But what happens is if a partner is giving our baby a bath and we're hovering over and we go, "Don't do that!" Oh my gosh, you're going to drown the baby! No! Oh my gosh, don't do that with the diaper. You're going to cut off their circulation. <laughs> what happens? that partner backs up, throws their hands up, says, fine, you do it. Right. Then what happened over time? Maybe not that time, but over time, at first they just get like a headache, but then they back up. Then what happens over time? They do it less and less and less. Now, what do we do? We build up resentment. That partner has less ownership. They have less competence. So what I like to encourage people to do is actually what Eve Rodsky talks about in her book, Fair Play, which is Have a minimum standard of care for these tasks, for these responsibilities. Talk through. If you don't like the way that your partner does it, talk through and say, listen, I know you're going to do it in a different way. Here's like the two or three things that I just, that I care the most about. And then please for the love, take a giant step back because that is the actual thing that you have to do to allow that other person to fill the space and to show up.
1: And because we need them to show up and we want them to be engaged partners, which also means being engaged parents benefits our
0: kids too. Yes, exactly. And that still happens for me. I'm sure you can imagine as a pediatrician, I'm like (laughs) miss know-it-all in my house. And so my husband and I still go to couples therapy and to parenting counseling for my daughter to have someone coach me on, Oh, you're kind of stepping in again, Dr. Whitney. Like, Take a step back so that way he can take the reins. So that way your daughters build a really special relationship with their father that's unique to them so that they go to him for issues. So you don't feel quite so much pressure and weightiness of the needs of the people in your life or the needs in your house.
1: So it's not only a mechanism to go into Delivery Rested and come out of Um, to really go through postpartum with support. It's also really an investment in the long-term solution of not doing this all alone.
0: Absolutely. Because when it comes down to it, sometimes in my head, I do say, this would be so much easier if it was just me, go away. (laughs) But, but, But I really love my husband. You know, we've been married for, gosh, going on 17 years this year. And I know that he brings unique gifts Into our home, into our family, and that his. He's a very like masculine and feminine type of guy, but that his, his masculine parts are important for my kids. You know, that, that his just personality, even if he wasn't a guy, even if I was married to a woman, that that unique personality is important for my kids as well in my family dynamic. So because I want him to stick around and be part of things, then yes, I continue to make that investment because I know that's going to help him have ownership and feel like he has belonging within our home particularly
1: for our partners. Um, as we're going through that very tender time, and I say tender in its sweetest way, and also in the vulnerability that women have, particularly around postpartum depression, what should their partners be watching for
0: and how can they help? Yeah, this is important. You want to watch number one, actually for irritability, which I, I didn't realize that as much until I went through it. But Um, this happens for men in particular, men can get postpartum depression, anxiety as well, as well as women um, where you're just snapping at everybody. You're mad at everybody or the sense of every single thing needs to be clean or everything needs to be managed. You can get postpartum kind of compulsiveness or OCD as well. Hypervigilance. Exactly. The other is you know, excessive teariness, it's excessive emotion. It's normal to have the ups and downs. You have lots of hormonal shifts that happen, especially in the first weeks to months of having a baby. But if your partner is constantly just on the couch, crying their hands in their, their, their head in their hands, that means there is something up. Also, if your partner stops, starts talking about how they're having images or thoughts of hurting their baby or of hurting themselves. You're seeing them visibly get upset with their child and that they're looking like they're very angry at their child or they're looking like they're almost physically about to do something with your child. That's a wonderful time to step in. That is a red flag. Absolutely. And pediatricians, OBGYNs, there's even baby blues connections. So there are online hotlines. We're all here to help you. And Many of us have gone through the same thing ourselves.
1: So in that context, what's the short list of how to be supportive during this time, even
0: when it's not acutely postpartum to depression? But you know, you're still postpartum. Yeah. Um, so number one is using compassionate assertiveness in your conversations. And this is true like both ways. It goes from, you know, the mom to the other partner and the partner back. So just Compassion assertiveness means that you are being empathetic in your conversation that you're pointing out first. I'm wondering if you're feeling frustrated. <laughs> I'm wondering if you're feeling sad. I wonder language is much less aggressive and allows someone to say like, yes, that's right. Or no, you got that completely wrong. And then to say, to use assertiveness to say, I want to make sure that we are a safe home and that you're safe as well. And that we're all well taken care of how can i how can i help you how can i support you i want to do some of this chronologically
1: so you know one of the critical times we know is when women start going back to work and it, and i feel like um and lauren smith brody helped me really see this well that it's really should be a partnership that there's you know what we're going through with our our own bodies our emotions our babies our partners but there's also as employers We're part of that equation. So talk to me about how as the moms or as the people who are bringing them back to work, what should we be navigating during that really, I think, fragile and potent time?
0: Yeah, Um, and I have a unique uh, outlook on this because I am an employer too. I'm a partner within my business. I'm on the executive leadership team. I make decisions all the time from a business perspective. And so I understand both sides here for sure. You know, I think the number one thing that employers can do is to accept requests for flexibility or for alternative schedules and to be able to see that in a long-term continuum for someone's life as opposed to just in the short term. So I'm always thinking about if I have an excellent employee someone who has star power that i really want to keep around i want them to be here for 20 30 years if they need an alternative schedule for a few months as they are easing back into the workplace if they need all of their accommodations which are federally protected right. to pump you know then i want to give that person that support because i know that that's going to engender loyalty And that that person, when they are well and whole, we talked about that at the beginning of the show, will be able to actually do better work. They'll Mm -hmm. be more focused. They'll be more engaged. They're not going to be thinking as much about all these other things that they have to do because they've taken care of that in discrete pockets of time or when it works for them. So for example, last year, this is even beyond the postpartum period, but this could have happened then too. Last year, my daughter needed me to be there for school drop-off in the mornings. And so I went to my organization and said, hey, I need to start my schedule at 9.30 in the morning instead of 8.30 in the morning on these specific days. One thing from an employee perspective you can do, which I did, is I created a solution and brought it to my employer.
1: Okay, so that's an important tactic. Um, And this is particularly interesting because it's not just that you're a working mom, you're a physician. And um, last I checked, um it's not easy for women in the medical profession. The New York Times did an actually kind of startling article last week on a study that was done on surgeons and the rates of miscarriage and fertility treatments and the stress that they experience because this is a competitive workplace and demanding. Um so in that context um how did what did you learn that we could help other people navigate it when it sounds like the people they report to may not be as open to flexibility.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think, in terms of the breastfeeding and pumping, I think you really do have to remind people and take them to task on what your rights are and show up for that. Um, I learned that I had to be vocal about in order to like, yes, I could squeeze out a few drops of milk in, you know, two (laughs) minutes, but in order to be relaxed enough to actually get the amount of milk that I needed to feed my baby, I need a full 30 minutes. I have to like get in the zone. I need to Please, It's a, it's a project day. just to close the door and attach the gizmos. Yes, exactly. Pull the drapes, take the whole dress off. Sometimes I'd forget that I was wearing a dress that day. I'd just be like, they <laughs> in my office. And so, um, yeah, I think sometimes you do have to just take to task to say, listen, this is, this is the thing. The other um, that I love that Mary Beth Ferranti talks about from Work 360 is this idea of parenting out loud and being very vocal as an employee. And then if you are in senior leadership or in middle management, being vocal as well about the fact that you are a parent, whether you are male, female, or or other, so that that way it becomes the norm that Mm -hmm. we are beings outside of work that we are pumping, that we're not hiding the breast milk in like little tiny containers that have like a secret little, you know, label on them, that instead there's like, yeah, there's a bottle of breast milk in there with no cover over it, just has the top on, that's it, you know? So I think being open, being vulnerable and linking up with other women who are above you, who have done the same, having mentorship, I think that also is extremely important. And if you're in senior senior leadership, looking out for those opportunities to bring other women along with you. So there's
1: two things in here that I want to kind of bring into high relief a bit. So one is um, removing the taboo of talking about what are perfectly natural processes. Um, Mm -hmm. I I would extend that we should be doing this about a lot of things, including menopause, Mm -hmm. that these are not like dirty little icky secrets and we shouldn't say these things out loud. We have to own them as natural part of our lives and bodies, but that the other is creating a culture within the workplace where parenting is not hidden.
0: Exactly, yes, where parenting is, natural, where sometimes I do have a really important dance recital that my daughter has in the middle of the day at school or performance that she's so jazzed about, right? Those things that I want to go to and that she looks me dead in the eyes and says, mom, I really want you to be there for me. Great. I should be able to take the time to do those things. Now, a volunteer thing, cutting out, you know, squares for a banner at her classroom (laughs) that I feel guilty about doing. Yeah. I'm not going to take time off for that. I'm going to do my job that I love, but the things I care about that we should be able to have the ability to
1: do. So I want to talk about this a little bit because you're right. We need the, I think, you know, I talk about this all the time that whether we're talking about retaining talent as an asset to an organization or it's retaining talent through these years of parenthood, the answer is the same. The workplace needs the flexibility. Um, But what you're talking about is also, sounds like um, it's about discerning when and how we make those choices Um, to cross those boundaries between work and and our personal lives, Um, and what the criteria is for making those choices. And it sounds like, and I know from my own experience, that it felt like there was an endless onslaught of those choices, whether it was, am I packing like the Donna Reed lunches and like running a house like Martha Stewart was there. I, and I'm sorry, like, I apologize to these female icons, but, you know, some of us like have some neuroses from them. Um, or is it about what you attended school, the pressure from other parents, the pressure from work? Um, talk to me more about navigating this in a sustainable way.
0: Yeah. Um, so one is, I think, be really, really upfront. In the school realm, with your parents, teachers, and caregivers, so they know where you are. Like every single caregiver at my kid's schools knows that I'm a doctor, I'm a pediatrician, and I'm not rude about it. Like I don't have time for you, but I'm <laughs> very much like listen. I work. I can't. No, I can't come to a meeting at ten o'clock in the morning for a parent-teacher conference. You know, like it's got to be at seven. Sorry, right. you know. Um. Or or write me an email. You know. Um. The the other is. I do encourage working parents to volunteer, um, but not for the sake actually of cutting out the squares for the banner for the classroom. I encourage them to volunteer so that they have like it a look into the classroom to see what's happening for their kids. I'm talking about like once or twice, you know, right. and and that they have a relationship with the teacher. They built like a face-to-face early on in the school year. COVID's gonna make this weird this year, but in general. And then that way. You can like hands off, just do an email, find out from the teacher. Like, is there a tech a way that I can text on a school app? So that, that way you like invest in the beginning a little bit of face-to-face time, a little bit of relationship building, and then you can explain kind of your situation of listen, I'm a high-powered lawyer or high-powered businesswoman or whatever. And then say, you know, like I'm clearly obviously very invested in my child's education and their well-being here at school. And also I got a busy job. So If we can figure out a way to communicate that's going to make it easy for me and you, that would be awesome.
1: It also sounds like I felt this then, and all of a sudden, you're giving me a new way of thinking about it that it's the culture around parent involvement that has not adapted to include working moms, that it centers on moms, it centers on the idea that one parent is available during the school day, and that um, it's for labor intensive things. Like one of the things that just irritated the hell out of me was um, fundraising requests that would require Hours of outreach to sell candles or wrapping paper or whatever it was, where actually, and this is whether you're high powered or not, but the time that I would lose from work, especially if I was an hourly employee, was far more expensive than like the the return on the effort made no sense. Like, could you just tell me what the yield is that you want from my sales and I will write you a check so I could go back to work.
0: Yes, that is what we do. <laughs> the fun run for my kids. I just write in like 10 names and I write them a check for 30 bucks. I don't have time. That's selective mediocrity. That is, I, I don't care. My kid shouldn't have to not get the t-shirt because I don't want to spend five hours calling every relative because I need to write an article for the New York times or because I I need to go see a patient or because I have a job at a grocery store and I need to make ends meet and I need to go do that work, you know, whatever. And if it, you're you know, going to
1: put pressure on those five hours of calls in your life, maybe it's to get somebody to help
0: babysitter, or pick the kids up from school when you're with a patient. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, uh, some of it is, uh, and I think actually this is true in the workplace and when we deal with schools, it's like part of it is moving the culture forward educating, being out loud, changing, and changing the culture at school as well. And some of it is in this moment before culture changes, because I really am not holding my breath that tomorrow everything's going to be perfect (laughs) for me and set up perfectly and everyone's going to understand all my issues and, you know, insecurities and conflicts, inner conflict, that right now, what do I do as an individual while I continue to advocate for policy change and for education and for culture change. In the meantime, what do I do to make it work without feeling guilty? Because I know that when I think about what are my top five priorities, my kid's school fundraiser is not on there. You know, (laughs) it's not included on there.
1: I totally hear you. By the way, for those of you who are hearing us, but just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel One Thirty Two, and I'm your host, Laura Zaram, talking with Dr. Whitney Casares, author of The Working Mom Blueprint. So, Whitney, one of the places where there are both clearly structural problems, but individual choices that we have to navigate, is the challenge of choosing childcare, the question of after-school care, school programs, um, how we wrap our heads around it um, emotionally financially, and also how it not just impacts us, obviously, but how it impacts our children and the dynamic tension between those things. Um, I know you wrote about this in the book. Can you share a little bit with us um, to tune us into how to navigate something so complex and fraught with problems?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is one that is so much about trade-offs and benefits for each individual family. Because I don't think there is a perfect child care situation, especially in the early years. The If you do a nanny, it's usually very expensive. If you have daycare, then you have to deal with the kids getting sick more and maybe the drop off and pickup isn't as flexible. So. I like to think about this like a little pros and cons chart for every single family to say, what are the things that matter most to you? What are, your, what are the things that are deal breakers for you? For me, it's the flexibility. I needed that to be there because sometimes I have a late patient. Um, for me, it's my kids not getting sick. I need to make sure my kids aren't sick because that costs me more. Um, but for other people, it's the it's the consistency of they want to have a daycare center or a childcare center where if maybe a provider's sick, they don't have to rush home or where they have the social input from the other kids that are going to be there or they like that they're there on holidays or whatnot. So I think it's it's very in, in individual. In the book, we do go through each of the options, pros and cons, and put a chart in there for folks. Um the other thing that I'm always encouraging people, especially in the early years and before they had their babies, is if you are planning on doing individual care, so an in-home nanny, um, or even honestly for daycare centers at this point, usually I don't want to drive the fear of God into people, but this is one where planning ahead does matter. And that if you want to have someone who's really quality as, um, for a childcare center, usually it's about six months in advance that you have to start thinking about it, interviewing and or putting in your applications. That said, if you get in a pickle, like I have a ton this year, having some grace for yourself and maybe that person who's going to have to be a pitch hitter for you for a little while and just like, okay, that's where all that self-care comes in and like, you know, getting okay with your feelings to help with the anxiety, um, you know, life happens, things happen, right? But if you're trying to make it so that you have childcare that's sustainable and works for you, usually planning about six months ahead is is a good plan. And then again, no childcare situation is perfect or necessarily better than the other. Um, I think it's all about just trade-offs and benefits.
1: Okay. Put your pediatrician hat on for a minute and just I'm hoping I'm going to hear the answer I'm hoping for, which is the choice of, you know, there are a lot of families that are worried about daycare versus being at home that by working, we're harming our children. I know you and I are both fans of Stu Friedman. So I think, you know, where I'm going with this, but talk to me,
0: are kids okay? Whose moms put them in childcare? One hundred percent. Let me say it again for the people in the back. One hundred percent. In fact, when parents are at home with their kids, but not really conscious or aware of them and they're like kind of distracted and doing things when they're around their kids, that is worse for their kids than if you are gone doing work away, separately discreet, and then come back and spend quality time with your children. So you are not harming your children by working, by putting them in childcare. In fact, there are huge benefits, for them having other people in their village, for them learning another style, for the flexibility that they get. Also, just to remember, mama, like I want to say this so clearly, you are a shining example for your kids when you work of contribution to the world, of passion, of resilience, of problem solving, of teamwork. I mean, I talk about my business all the time with my kids and they're learning those hard earned lessons that I'm learning along with me. And so, um, the best gift that you can give to your kids is to be you authentically with them versus you trying to be somebody else. And that includes in my family and so many other families, childcare and you should not feel guilty about that for one second because your kids are not harmed by that at all. In fact, in a lot of cases, they do better for it.
1: I, and I think it was Stu who either told me about this study or did it that um, adult children who had working moms were actually self report as happier in the long run.
0: Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. I am trying to raise my children to be adults. Like That is the point. (laughs) That is the point. I'm trying to raise my kids to be happy, healthy, not even just happy, to be resilient, 35-year-olds. Independent, high-functioning. Exactly. Who know their place in the world and feel very secure in that place in the world. And so to do that, I don't need to helicopter around them 24-7. In fact, I need to give them experiences where they have a little bit of discomfort and they have to deal with that. I have to give them experiences where, you know, I, I drop them off at the childcare center and they maybe have a tiny tear in their eye. And I do too. And I say, Hey, I love you so much. Mommy's going to see you later. You're going to do great. And then guess what happens two days later? They're like, peace out. See you mom. Like they don't want anything to do with me. uh, Yeah. So part of raising adults is giving our kids opportunities to grow and to see that they can do hard things. And um, and to see that they can have flexibility and to see that um, that that they are not dependent on me being with them wholly 100 percent to be OK. And so I think for working moms, it's important to remember that that, that we're giving our kids an amazing gift by working.
1: So we've spent a lot of our time talking about those early years because it's it's so it's like a visceral thing, how hard that is. But parenting doesn't stop when they go to school full time. Um, I have a 19 year old and I felt the juggle struggle this week getting her ready to go back to school. So talk to me a little bit about how to calibrate changes as our kids are maturing. that um, is it that, you know back to the idea that we can't do you can have it all just not at the same time in the rhythm of how our children grow um is it a daily balance a yearly change in how we shift when we when we should be prepared that they need us and when we can you know get little pieces of our own lives back more
0: yeah um, so there's two books that I love in this regard. One is Raising Kids to Thrive by Ken Ginsburg, And the other is The Conscious Parent, um, which both talk a ton about spending enough time with our kids. And I, I realize this is like in contrast to what I just said about childcare, but spending enough but time. Both things, things can be true. Both things can be true. Enough quality time with our kids that we know them and are aware enough of who they are and of what they need from us. Because I think each kid is completely different and this is what I mean by this. Um it's not enough to be with our kids for like 5 minutes at a time to scoop them up and take them to camp and drop them off and that's it and then we come home and then we're rushing and then we're doing dinner and then like we don't have any time and then they're trying to get our attention and then we'd like put them to bed and that's it. Um and we it's not enough actually to be there just for the huge moments. It's not enough to be there just for graduation or their track meet or for their lowest times, the times when they're really struggling and really needing us. We need to have some pockets of time with our kids and this can be on weekends or in the evening, doesn't have to be in the middle of the day. Where we're just with them. Where they're doing the thing that they want to do, they're playing their video game and we're like, "Hey, can I sit here with you and hang out, (laughs) where we are on the couch reading next to them our own book while they're reading. Those times when our kids pop up and ask us questions that say like, hey, I had this thing with my friend. Hey, this happened at school today. And as our kids get older, what we want to do kind of in this um, growth mindset mentality, always bringing them toward being adults is as they get older to work more and more and more on not solving problems for them, but instead being a space where they can safely share the emotions that they're having and helping them to learn to sit with that discomfort of those emotions or with the discomfort of a situation that's not going well. And then to work with them to say, huh, well, how does that make you feel?
1: Huh? Well, this is I, as really hard. I'm just telling you It's like <laughs> in my living room.
0: It, it is extremely hard. Even for me with my eight-year-old, I mean, she goes like, could you hear and watch this spirit writing free show? I'm like, Oh no, I don't, but I'm going to, you know, like <laughs> I don't. So yes, it is really hard. And it's really hard not to jump in with the solution.
1: That's the thing. It's, and it's interesting how you're reminding us that the whole the long-term goal is their independence. And I think it comes from a place of concern, like you said, the mama bear programming and also some guilt as to how actively and fully can we parent, protect them, solve the problems where, it's a, we have to get out of their way so that they can solve them themselves. But it's, if I'm understanding you and and it's bringing back all these memories that when we just hold still next to them, they can come to us when they need us. And otherwise they just know we're there. Is that really
0: like at the heart of it? That's at the heart of it. It's, it's that. And what we talked about with partners, it's that when we take a step back from solving all of our kids' issues for them, but instead being with them, being present, being their cheerleader, being their confidant that they can talk to, that allows them then to step in. Like same as our partners, it allows them to build that skill. It allows them to build competence. It allows them to know they can do it Themselves. So,
1: ironically, or I think quite delightfully, what starts as a kind of twenty-four-seven, um, you know, perception that the answer to it in the beginning and as they mature is knowing when to pull back.
0: Yes, I mean, <laughs> I think maybe that's like the lesson of my life that that is <laughs> in general the answer to most things, right? Is knowing when to pull back, and that's the same with with work. Right. It's, it's the knowing when to pull back and not to be too woo woo, but like the only way that I am in tune with myself, att- attuned to myself enough to know when to pull back on things or to know when to dig into things is when I have those spaces where I'm really quiet with myself and where I really get to know myself. Whitney, I
1: hate to do this, but we have some quiet coming up because we're running out of (laughs) airtime. So where can people find out more about you briefly?
0: Find me at Modern Mommy duck. I'm on the gram. You can find me on Instagram and at ModernMommyDoc.com. The book is The Working Mom Blueprint. You can find it wherever books are sold. Whitney,
1: thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening. If you have any questions, write to us on Business Radio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, me at Laura Zarrow. Thank you, Patty, my producer, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week, everybody, and take a step back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.